think most of us will have had the experience of entering into a situation feeling so sure that what we're doing is, is right by God. But upon acting on that conviction, doubtless after prayer and consideration, and perhaps excitement at the prospect, discovering that making the most of it, or even carrying on, is much harder than we expected it to be. And perhaps this is something that you're, you're struggling with right now. It could be a situation in the workplace. You are certain that this uh, career move was the right thing and you're looking forward to, to the new challenge. But what happened? People seem intent on making your life difficult for you. Or it could be that you're a, you're a student at uni trying to, to be a good witness for Christ. But your fellow students don't te- seem to take your faith seriously. And uh, your lecturers may even make fun of you. Or maybe it's a family issue that you're facing. You do your best to be a good mum or dad, uh, a good son or daughter. But your efforts don't seem to be appreciated. Or it could be a matter that you're facing as a church or a more, or a more personal issue within the church that's testing you and your response to these situations could run the whole gamut of emotions disappointment anger, frustration sorrow, discouragement fear and it's in such circumstances that we really need God's encouragement to press on so that as James writes in his epistle in the New Testament the testing of our faith might develop perseverance we need to be reminded that in our, in our struggles and in our shortcomings, we have a place in God's great plans. And we need to recall our identity as children of God, redeemed by him and living under his caring eye. And then perhaps we can experience a, a deeper joy in God, knowing that he is for us, not against us, and that he wants, to, he wants us to move ahead in his will. And I think that the, uh, the, first, the, the three chapters of the book of Ezra that we're looking at this evening can help us in this. From these chapters we see that opposition to, to God's work is nothing new. In fact, it's to be expected. But we also see that it's, it doesn't have to stop us serving him. We need to be reminded that God's decree cannot be derailed. God is with us and is uh, at work in us to fulfill his purposes for his own glory. Uh, I just put this up to remind you of uh, the chronology of what's happening and when. And the the first six chapters of Ezra cover a period of just 20 years. And they give an historical review of events some 70 years before what most of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah tells us. These chapters deal with the building of the, the second temple, the second Jewish temple, that was begun under the Persian king Cyrus in uh, 537 BC and was completed under the Persian king Darius in 516 BC and the re-establishment of the people of God in their promised land. And uh, last Sunday evening, Nigel preached and left us on an upbeat note. The people had returned 
had constructed an altar and had begun to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And this marked the first phase in fulfilling the mission that was brought into effect through Cyrus's edict and that God had entrusted to his people. But now we find that opposition uh, to the building of the temple comes. So if you could turn your Bibles to chapter 4 of Ezra, I think that's page 476 in the church Bibles. Um, the account that's begun in, chap- in, in chapter 4 and verses 1 to fi- uh, 5 there is picked up in chapter 4 and verse 24 and that's situated in the reign of Cyrus and down to the second year of the reign of Darius. Verses 6 to 23 in this chapter concern a much later experience of opposition to the rebuilding of the city walls Uh, as we see in um, verse 12 of this chapter. And that's after the temple has been completed. And it's most likely that this section's been included parenthetically uh, at this point to emphasize that both periods of opposition involve the same kinds of difficulties from the same uh, sources, from similar sources. And so for this reason, the, the events of this period Um, can be viewed under the title A Temporary and Typical Setback. We're meant to get a sense for the continuity of the opposition that the people of God faced. I won't read this uh, parenthetical section now, but I will refer to it later. So let's look at chapter 4, reading from verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God, and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counsellors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then moving to verse 24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the major concern of these verses is the the delay of the building. Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, give uh, internal reasons for this delay. Whereas here we we have a complementary reason, it's external opposition. Uh, Last week we heard from Nigel that the the returnees were fearful of the people in the land. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 3 you can see that, you're reminded of that. 
And now the adversaries step, on, step out of the shadows and onto the stage. But who are these enemies of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes of the kingdom of Judah which had been exiled? Well, after the fall of Samaria and the subsequent deportations from the northern kingdom uh, of Israel by the Assyrians roughly 200 years before this, the Assyrian king Esarhaddon brought foreigners into Israel and forced them to settle in, in the depopulated land, including the region where the temple was to be rebuilt. And they're the descendants of these people. And they come with an offer, and it's quite a reasonable sounding offer at that. Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since we were brought here. The governor Zerubbabel and the priest Jeshua, also known as Joshua, and the heads of the families of Israel were hardly enthusiastic about this offer. You have no part with us in building a temple to our God, they tell them. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus commanded us. So much for offering help and uh, being friends. But why were the Jews so negative about this offer? Part of the reason for their rejection of the, off of the offer is that they didn't want to jeopardize the legal authority, authority that they had from Cyrus for rebuilding the temple by allowing other groups to join them as equal, par as equal partners in the building. They were being consistent with what uh, they had been given permission to do. And the work could only go ahead on the basis of God's revealed will expressed through Cyrus's edict. Also, the, the leaders of the province of Samaria probably saw the emergence of a new and self-confident presence in Judah, which had the backing of the imperial government in, of Persia as a threat. And their offer, to, their offer to help in sharing the costs and labor in building the temple would mean that they actually had a certain amount of control in the temple itself. So that's one reason why they rejected their offer. But there's a deeper and more significant reason why they rejected their offer. And that's that they were guarding the, their identity as the Lord's covenant people. They'd remained devoted followers of the Lord, Yahweh, throughout the time of their exile in Babylon. And they'd maintained their identity as a distinct community of faith. We find some very revealing things about these people. Uh, who made the offer in 2 Kings in chap chapter 17. This chapter tells us that despite an Israelite priest being dispatched from Assyria to teach these people, their approach to religion remained very much a syncretistic one. Their loyalties were well and truly divided. They were a people who feared the Lord, the chapter tells us, but also served their own gods. And their children did likewise, and their children's children. That's verses 33 and 41 of uh, 2 Kings 17. They really were hardened in their idolatrous ways. And their descendants were the Samaritans of Jesus' day. And most of us know something of the, the uh, ongoing friction between uh, the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus himself said to the, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. 
That's John 4.22. So by merging with these people, they would have uh, lost their identity and compromised the pure faith that they had in the Lord. How could they pretend that the differences between them and a people who didn't honor the Lord didn't really matter? Well, what might this mean for us? Circumstances have changed radically through the coming of Christ, through his death and resurrection. And the barriers between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, that existed have been torn down. As Christians, I believe we're called to show a basic openness to people from all backgrounds and whoever they may be. And in this we really follow Christ. We shouldn't be marked by a a self-righteous siege mentality that keeps other human beings at arm's length. However, our identity as God's chosen, chosen and redeemed people cannot be compromised. That's the same for us today as it was for them at that time. And we must resist the temptation, for it's a very strong temptation these days, to deny the uniqueness of Christ. We will be called intolerant or arrogant if we, if we reject this tendency, if we resist this tendency. But we do know that only those who worship Christ in spirit and truth can have a part in the spiritual temple of which he is ahead. And the media in particular really likes to, uh, to insist that it's impossible to be at one and the same time open to others and loving and yet uncompromising as regards what we believe God has revealed uh, in Christ and what, and what he has said in his word. And it's our responsibility or it's um, our call is to, to prove that that's false. Perhaps the following comment uh, is helpful in this regard. One commentator um, said these words about, about this uh, episode. The church will never attain its effectiveness as salt and light through compromise and lack of a positive identity. Rather, it must seek new ways in which these necessary properties can be applied in a spirit of love and reconciliation to a world whose need of them is everywhere apparent. Of course, we can't expect this stance to be uh, appreciated by the world. If you look at verse 4 here, we see that after the people took a clear stand, the peoples around them then set out to discourage them and to make them afraid. Um, The people here is a wider number than the the enemies that we see um, in verse 1. And it's probably the local population in in general whose hostility was either expressed or whipped up by the characters who actually uh, broached the interfaith idea that we've just heard about. And they use the strategy of intimidation. They intimidate the people, seeking to end the, the building. Um, in verse 5, the NIV translates that they, they hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans. Um, these counselors could have been um, 
Persian, official, Persian governors or officials. But the word could actually mean that they, they bribed these people. They resort to very dirty tactics indeed, consistently dogging their efforts and trying to grind them down. And it says they're frustrating, they were frustrating the plans of the Jews. And that literally means that they were weakening their hands. Their motto was, if you can't join them, beat them. But notice that God's people don't retaliate. I think that's an important thing for us to, to bear in mind here. And isn't this exactly what Satan aims to do to us as Christians? If we reject his subtle suggestions to compromise, he has other ways of knocking us off course and he'll use them. He often tries to discourage us and to make us fearful so that we don't go ahead, just as he, he does here. I think Paul's words of advice to us in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 are really pertinent to this whole episode. He writes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. As we read in verse 24, the enemies of Judah have apparent success. It says, thus the work of God came to a standstill. And this was a period that lasted many years. And how much does it take us to abandon the Lord's work that he's given us to do, whatever form that work may take? We won't go into um, verses 6 to 23 in, in any detail at this time, but um, <clears throat> this section teaches, that, teaches us that opposition to God's work is really to be expected. And it can reappear um, at a later stage, even after things seem to have settled down. This came from a, a later period in, in, in their history, as I mentioned earlier. That's not exactly encouraging, but it is realistic. And the Bible is indeed very realistic about the, the spiritual battle that we are a part of. And I think we can really thank God for that, that um, we do have such realism in the scriptures. Uh, this, this, uh, these verses record, record opposition from the same Samaritan source. Um, and verse, verse 6 refers to the... Uh, mixed up with the notes there but someone said of, of this, uh, this section verses 6 to 23 that what they're actually doing is they're painting an alarmist picture it's quite devoid of historical probability in lurid hues from the palette of ethnic prejudice uh, what, they're, what they're saying can't really be uh, taken seriously Let's move on to, to look at uh, chapter 5. So now we're looking at how they, they got back on track. 
And I'm just going to read from uh, verses 1 to, to 17. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shephar Bozanai and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shephar Bozanai and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the districts of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building, building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We question the elders and ask them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? We also ask them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and build the house of God on its site. So this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but is not yet finished. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then, the king, uh, then let the king send us his decision in this matter. Well, chapter 5 shows us how God got the earlier work on the temple back on track. And like every major spiritual advance in script, recorded in scripture, this one begins with a word from the Lord. Uh, this time next week, Tim Walk will be exploring the details of uh, what God's prophetic word was saying to the returnees and is saying to us today. But it's, it's enough uh, for me to say that we, we really need God's word to encourage us to, to carry on when things get tough. 
his encouragement to press on with the work that he's called us to. Uh, As verse 1 of this chapter says, he is over us and over every situation. And then as verse 2 says, he's, he's with us. He's helping us by his spirit and his word. But what about us? Will we, will we allow God's word to break into our situations of despondency or spiritual lethargy? Or will we just say nothing can change? And we can stay in such a condition for, for even for many months or, or years like God's returning people did at this time. But the Lord doesn't want us to stay um, in, those, um, in those situations. He wants to encourage us And there may even be a loving rebuke that he wants us to hear at these times. The most important thing on on our part is a willingness to to listen to what he says and to respond to his direction. Although it's not stated in, in this chapter, it's possible that the Samaritans had again made a complaint against the Jews to to Tatanai, the governor of the overarching province of Trans Euphrates which formed a a Persian satrapy together with Babylon. The chain of command that we see here was probably from from Tatanai to the satrap, to the provincial governor, uh, his superior in Babylon, and then to King Darius. And this guy, Shethar Bozanai, was probably the the secretary who drafted the letter to to send to King Darius. And now we can see the, uh, the wisdom of the returnee's earlier rejection of the offer that we looked at to help in the building. Um, If you look at verse 4 of this chapter, they're asking, what are the names of the men constructing this building? Even though everything was above board, um, the Jews would surely feel very nervous at the prospect of their work being, being stopped yet again. But then we have this really uh, this lovely phrase, the eye of their God was watching them and they were not stopped until official confirmation could be found in verse 5. And this eye is the exact opposite of the, the ominous eye of Sauron that we uh, read about in the Lord of the Rings. And the reference to this eye may be, uh, may be a deliberate contrast with the, the 24-hour surveillance of the, the Persian authorities, the inspectors who are called the king's eye. And this signifies the, the caring watchfulness of God over his people. There's another example in um, Psalm 33 and verse 18, which says, the, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. And the answer that uh, the elders give to Tatanai that we see uh, in this chapter, that's recorded as a part of the letter to Darius, reveals their consciousness of their identity. If you look at verse 11, they call themselves servants of the God of heaven and earth. Servants. And they refer back to the the great temple built by Solomon in the glory days of Israel, um, about 400 years previously. And they see themselves in continuity with the Jews of that time. Continuity is a really important theme that Nigel uh, touched on last week. 
and they admitted that it was their fathers who had angered the, uh, the Lord and that, that was the reason they had been exiled to uh, Babylon just as the prophet Jeremiah had said they would be they were, a, they were a chastened and repentant people and they were determined to put the decree of Cyrus which demonstrated that the Lord's the period of the Lord's judgment had come to an end, into effect. And they knew that God was fulfilling his immensely gracious promise to restore them, as we see in verses uh, 13 and on in this chapter. And surely this can remind us of how important it is to have a clear sense of our identity in God, who we are and where God has brought us from. And we see this pattern again and again, don't we, in the New Testament epistles. Remember what you are, what you were, sorry. How you were lost and dead in your sins. But that now, in spite of all your wickedness, God has done the most wonderful thing for you. The classic example of this would be uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And as we know that we are a people whose sin has been exposed before the Lord and we're very aware of how we continue to fail the Lord as Christians we know that despite all this he has chosen us as his people and given us a new identity and a mission in this world we really have to hold on to that new identity and that sense of mission and the Lord desires humility in us as the returnees had humility and called themselves servants. And this language of servanthood, of course, is, is so central to what it means to be a follower of the, the suffering servant. Only with a clear sense of our identity in Christ can we really play an effective part in fulfilling his plans. But there's nothing in, in the letter that uh, directly suggests that Tatanai's uh, intent was hostile. In fact, it's quite likely that he expected a record of the edict to be found. But we're left holding our breath with the Jews who await the royal yes, the green light. So we move into chapter 6. Let's read this chapter together. Sorry, I'll read it and, and you follow along. King Darius then issued an order and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury of Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekbatana in the province of Media. And this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar-Bozanai, and you, 
their fellow officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with their work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them, daily, without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven, and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house, and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple of Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethobozani and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, 400 male lambs and, as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers and priests and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. The scroll that provided evidence of Cyrus's edict turned up not in Babylon, but in a place called Ekbatana, which was apparently the summer residence of the Persian kings. So it seems that Persian kings like to take their, their work away on holidays. With the, with the destruction of the temple, the temple being, after all, the place around which uh, their whole religious life was, was organized, and in particular where atonement for sin was made, 
They no longer had that, that great privilege given to them by the Lord. But now with the discovery of that, that scroll and the reactivation of Cyrus's decree, the people of God have the official green light to continue uh, the, the work that the Lord had given them to restore the temple so that right worship could be offered to the Lord. And so Tatanai and Shathar, Bozanai and, and company are told to let the Jews get on with their work. Perhaps we can just uh, linger on verse 10 of, of this chapter for a while. Which mentions uh, the prayers that would be said for the well-being of, of the king and his sons. And this reminds us that although we, we cannot compromise our uh, identity and our exclusive loyalty to Christ, still we're to show genuine concern for our land and those given authority to rule over us. The exiles have been told by Jeremiah to seek the welfare of Babylon and to pray on its behalf. For in the welfare of Babylon, they would find their welfare. And then Paul, of course, wrote to Timothy, urging that prayers be said on behalf of all people, for kings and all those in positions of authority, so that believers might live quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And we're told that this is a good thing to do, because God desires that all may be saved. And I just wonder how different our countries would be if, if no one prayed for them, and how much longer conflicts might drag on if no prayers were said for those things. But then uh, verse 11 warns us that we're not to ex- expect unceasing benevolence from uh, those in authority. And it's a very graphic illustration we have of, of how brutal governments can be. Even the apparently most enlightened governments as the Persian one was said to be. And so we read in verse 14 that finally, finally, the temple was completed with the encouragement and help of the prophets. According to God's decree through Cyrus, upheld by the other Persian kings in the sixth year of Darius. And that was uh, 516 B.C. And it was roughly 70 years after they had been sent into exile. The return from exile in Babylon has been called a, a second exodus. And as God told Moses that when he redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, he would make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites and would not let them leave empty-handed You can see that in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 21. So the Persian royal treasury here pays the costs for uh, the new temple. But most of all it's the celebration of of the Passover that we read about here that echoes the the exodus from from Egypt. And their their celebration, the people's celebration of the Passover recalled their, their fundamental status as a people who had been set free from captivity, at one time Egyptian captivity and later Babylonian captivity. And whereas fear and discouragement and procrastination had marked them, now they celebrate with great joy. It's repeated uh, three times in the chapter because they'd seen how God had been wonderfully at work in all the events 
leading to that point, and they knew that he would surely continue to work in their situation, leading them on. And so their identity really was grounded in their being God's redeemed people, in their changing and and often very insecure circumstances, and and in the great challenges that they faced and that we've heard something of, in all the opposition that they they faced. And and their hope was in a future greater uh, redemption, a redemption that would come through Christ and that we now look back on and that we're so grateful for. So as we face those circumstances that are are far more difficult than we imagine they would be, and as those things really test us, we need to remind ourselves of those fundamental things about our identity, who we are in the Lord, who we are in Christ. And as we celebrate uh, all that the Lord has done for us, and all that the Lord will do for us in the Lord's Supper and in all our worship, as we've been singing this evening, let us be joyful in being God's people and knowing that he's working out all things for our ultimate good. Just as we finish, I'd like us to to say these words together from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? May God bless his word to us.